Welcome to the Prodigy Maker Show with Chris Lewitt. Chris Lewitt is an internationally recognized high-performance coach, educator, and author of two best-selling books, The Tennis Technique Bible and The Secrets of Spanish Tennis. The show can be watched live, and video versions of the show are archived at youtube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt. And now, here's Chris. So, uh, Chris, why don't you uh, just give me your full name and uh, how you want to be identified in the story. My name is Chris Lewitt, L-E-W-I-T, and I am the author of The Secrets of Spanish Tennis and a high-performance coach here in the U.S. I work with a lot of, top, a lot of top juniors in the, in the U.S. And, and where do you do that? I'm based in, I have a club, I own, I'm, I'm a tennis club owner in Manchester, Vermont, which is in the northeast okay. of the U.S., and I also, I coach for 20 years in New York City, I still coach in New York City as well. Great. So, um, I, I was interested in talking to you because of the book you wrote. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a, well, yeah, I'm a tennis fan as well, and I've been intrigued by, you know, the, the, the very quick rise of of Alcaraz but also just more generally you know the I'm I'm interested in what you wrote about um you know so what is it that distinguishes the way that Spanish players are being trained and how they play yeah I figured you were a tennis fan I've had done a lot of these interviews actually with different uh, journalists so uh, with with Alcaraz well let's talk about Spanish tennis that the, the main secrets of Spanish tennis, what, what I always share, the, the general aspect is, number one, there's six aspects. Number one, uh, they are very good movers, so they specifically train footwork and movement in Spain uh, to the highest level. They're, they're famous for that. They have great movers, they have great footwork. Uh, number two, they are very consistent players. In Spain, they value consistency and steadiness. So they, they have, uh, they're well known for developing players who don't make a lot of errors. Alcaraz is a little bit outside of the norm in that respect. He goes for broke a bit more. He's a little more erratic than the, uh, the Spanish players who came before him, the champions, but we can talk about that. Uh, right. n- number three, they develop, uh, they have a system for developing a big foreign weapon. Uh, so they have uh, tremendous, for- typically Spanish players have a tremendous forehand weapon. So that is a big part of their development uh, model there in Spain. Uh, number four, they are very well known for their defense. They develop great defensive players. So not only offense, particularly with the forehand, but they have good defensive movement, good defensive capabilities. That's a big part of the Spanish way. And number five, in Spain, part of the system is of physicality. They have uh, wonderful trainers and physios and strength and conditioning coaches, and they develop players who are just uh, indefatigable. You know, they, they never they never fatigue, they never quit, um, and they have tremendous uh, endurance. Endurance is a very important concept and word in Spain. Uh, related to that is number six, uh, as a, the sixth pillar is their uh, capacity to suffer. In Spain, they have a philosophy about suffering, which is really fascinating to discuss and, and investigate, just going deep into their culture. But in their tennis culture, 
they believe in teaching suffering. They believe in developing the capacity to suffer. That was a major chapter in my book. And that's related to their physical strength and their physical endurance. So all the young players in Spain are taught to suffer on the tennis court, which if you're not from Spain may sound a little odd or strange, but they really do believe that uh, wholeheartedly. And it's a big part of their philosophy and culture and, and the tennis culture in Spain. And also, and to some extent, the, the culture itself. The whole country suffered under Franco for many years. So... Uh, a big part of Spanish tennis is the willingness and the, developing the capacity to suffer. That's interesting. I mean, the last two that you mentioned almost have to do with a mentality, right? Like, like how you how you approach the the, the competition. A a absolutely, absolutely. And not only and re related to that, and there's there's a number of offshoots and and segues, but. Related to that is they're known for being incredibly hard workers. Just on a fundamental basis, the Spanish players probably train harder than any other other country. Maybe that's changing now because all the other countries are trying to adapt in the last, let's say, several decades to compete with Spain. And and it's interesting to note that many countries are succeeding. Italy, for example, is doing very well now. And in many respects the Spanish model has been copied and proliferated all across the world in the last couple of decades. It's an interesting trend. They're all trying to compete. All these countries are trying to compete at the highest level. And right. Spain was the top dog for many years. And now they have strong competition. The U S is doing very well also. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was going to go back to the, the six pillars you mentioned. I mean, I think it, it's interesting you know, the things that you mentioned, like the, the, the forehand weapon, the footwork. I mean, th these are things that, that you know, as someone, you know, I, I, I play recreationally and I've got a, a son who's a junior player now here in Germany. Cool. I mean, these are things that are, that are sort of instilled, I, I think, in, in many places, right? Like footwork is obviously a huge thing. But is, is there something that, you know, the Spaniards are doing you know that that make it distinctive like 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 yes. that 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 you know you know what i mean like like i mean because everyone yes. teaches all these things in some respect right yeah and but i guess you, you go back to to the history of spain it goes back the, the real the change started in maybe 1970s and then the early 1980s there were two famous coaches in spain uh the legends the grandfathers the, the godfathers of spanish tennis luis bruguera and pato alvarez william pato alvarez unfortunately mm -hmm. william pato alvarez passed away um last year very sad but these figures were monumental in spanish tennis and to, to your question the guy william pato alvarez fascinating character very eccentric brilliant Luis Bruguera is also quite eccentric and brilliant. The two of them are, are powerful forces in Spanish tennis. And that's one of the theses in my book. You know, those two figures transformed Spanish tennis. And what William Pato Alvarez created was this system for training footwork. And he was obsessed with footwork. And he was a fan of ballroom dancing. And he, he developed this method of drills, mainly drills uh, from baskets, and sometimes in Spain they call them cubos, like these buckets of balls. And he, they're these series of geometric uh, movement drills and movements that can be linked together. It's a great system. I've, I've studied in the system for a long time. 
and I use it with my players. And but basically, it works a lot of the in and out movements on the court, back and forth, defense, offense, and it teaches players to move impeccably well with balance and precision. And so, one of the unique aspects of Spanish tennis was this system, like this literal training system that Pato Alvarez just created out of thin air in the nineteen. 70s more or less uh, and the whole country saw the success of Pato Alvarez with his students like Emilio Sanchez and Sergio Casal and a number of other top players on the tour and the whole country basically copied the, the, the method of Pato Alvarez and then subsequently Luis Bruguera with all of his success who had a, a similar system but with some variation and the entire country adopted these, these methods and That's one of the way that they build great movers. And um, also playing on, on the red clay helps the movement too. Other countries, some other countries also have red clay, but it's this, this movement and footwork system of Pato Alvarez that was really the gem of Spain that, that, that made their movement huh. training special. So he would set up these cubos like, like kind of in a, in, a, in a pattern, in like in a geometric pattern, and he would have... His yes. players kind of, it was almost like an obstacle course. Is that what you're, is that what you're talking about? No, the drills were like, like he's, he's famous for developing the X pattern. So the X is a very famous drill in Spain. And now it's all over the world. Everyone's copied it. But he, 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 huh. he created the, the X, which is basically you move back to hit a forehand and then you move forward maybe to hit a backhand along one half of the X. And then you might move back to hit a backhand and then forward to hit a forehand. And, and you just, this is endless. Uh, repetitions of uh, X patterns around the court, sometimes X pattern behind the baseline, sometimes X pattern in the midcourt or at the net. And, and um, it's a beautiful system and it, and it links together. You can, and what Pato Alvarez did was sometimes he would link the exercises together for hundreds of balls. You know, he was famous for uh, working players into the ground to make them suffer through 100, you know, 100 balls in a row, 200, 300 balls, three cubos in a, in a row. And that's how he would he would he would build stamina, which I mentioned was very very important in Spain endurance, and also the capacity to suffer. And he and at the same time, the 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 system developed this this movement and and balance. So that that drilling method is at the heart of Spanish tennis. And Luis Bruguera is a little bit younger, maybe ten years younger than Pato Alvarez, more or less. And he also developed a, a similar system. So the two of those guys, in my opinion, are fundamentally responsible for the, the whole revolution of, in, in Spain, you know, going wow. back to the 70s and 80s. They're, they're very powerful. For, they're, they're, they're very dynamic individuals, you know, they, through their own passion. And, you know, a coach can transform a country, especially a small country. And those two guys, with their passion and drive and dedication, they, they transformed the country uh, almost single-handedly. Single of course, there are other characters and forces. But, you know. and, it, and it's interesting. I mean, you see that. I mean, the, the, that, that obsession and concentration on footwork, you, you, you see that on display every time Nadal is, you know, whenever there's a coin flip, The other guys is usually sitting around waiting for the coin flip, and Nadal is like, he's like bouncing around, and he does not stop. I mean, he's he's constantly doing these these kind of shuffles back and forth, and Alcaraz does that as well. 
and it's interesting because you know there's there's something going on there that that other players aren't even bothering doing you know before the match yeah part of that is just their individual characteristics yeah. you know their personalities but they they both exemplify the warrior nature of of spanish tennis players and they both demonstrate the will they're both willing to suffer till the end and uh nadal probably more exemplifies that in his career more than than any spanish player he's just a, the most amazing he's the greatest spanish player ever uh, alcaraz is wonderful but he has not nearly close to what nadal has done in his career and those two guys are that that's typical of the, they're great role they're great role models and great examples of of um what they teach in Spain in many in, in different aspects but the mentality the energy the willingness to to uh chase every ball and fight you know when you when you're playing a Spanish player it's going to be a long day at the office because you they never give up they never tire and they're going to fight you all the way to the end you know they they're they're great great soldiers great warriors now, has this produced quantifiable results? I mean, I know that that's a dumb question because obviously it has, but I'm I'm just wondering have have you measured the results of this since the 70s since, you know, uh, Alvarez started, you know, teaching some of this stuff and Bruguera as well and 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 looking, you know, throughout the, the last few decades has have Spanish players um, you know, won more, you know, top ATP tournament matches and things like that yeah there, there's been there's there i don't think there's been many scientific studies but there's been lots of you know statistics um thrown around so i was just looking through uh, my first uh, book the secrets of spanish tennis to refresh my memory as well i have a new if you could mention also in your piece the the new mm -hmm. secrets of spanish tennis second edition fully updated all new chapters is is coming out um, at the end of the summer, early fall this year. So that would be great to mention. Oh, great. So I, so I would imagine you're going to be talking about Alcaraz in that book. That was a big part of the update is we yeah. have a new chapter on Alcaraz and his history and, and you know, how he was developed. And, and just there's many new chapters, including new new features of different coaches in Spain and new history. But the the what I mentioned in my book was in... For example, in 1973, there were only two Spaniards in the top 50. It was Manuel Orantes and Andres Jimeno. And by 2011, um, there were... Tip, tip, when you get into the 2000s, you, Spain had as many as 15 players in the top 100s. Uh, the, the level of players in, in the top 100 in the world typically fluctuated between 10 and 15 Spanish players. I I think they're around ten now. I'd have to check the recent wow. statistics. You can that's, check it that, too. That's actually pretty phenomenal, given that how how you know how small the country Spain is, relatively speaking. Basically, the last few decades they've fluctuated between ten and fifteen players in the ATP top hundred. And this was a country that in the early nineteen seventies only had two two players in the top fifty. Orantes and Jimeno were the the top players in Spain during that time period. And in the 60s, there was a guy, Manuel or Manolo Santana, who was the great, great champion of Spain. And, and it's, the history there is fascinating because Franco was a big tennis fan and he loved Santana. And Franco put a lot of money, investment into growing the game of, t of tennis in Spain at the club level, more at the grassroots level. And so in many ways, 
the the dictator Franco holds some responsibility for the growth of tennis in Spain. He thought it was a great sport for the masses to to play. And he was very proud of the success of Santana in the 60s. Santana was the um, great champion for Spain. Uh, He won the French Open in 1961 and 64, and he won the U.S. Open in 1965, and he won Wimbledon in 1966. So at, at that time, this is really, you know, for a small country that was in the... He was an amazing figure uh, for for, and Franco felt that the whole population, you know, they revered him, and he felt that tennis could be a great sport just for the country, all the people. So he wanted to make investments all over the country in tennis clubs and and facilities and to growing the game. And that th- those investments, you know, a few dec- decade or two later, paid off, and tennis had a there was a huge tennis boom in Spain. It's fascinating. That's fascinating. I didn't know that history of that. that so, yeah, I mean, at, like any effective dictator, he he sees a sports star and he's thinking, "Hmm, this guy's getting famous. <laughs> I got I got to hitch my hitch my cart onto this horse." Yeah, he was really <laughs> proud of the of Santana, and Santana was big right. big news in the country, and he felt tennis would be a great. You know, just yeah. healthy sport for the average people, yeah, and exactly. and he and suits, yeah, that, I mean, it suits the Spanish climate. You know, you, yeah, you can set up a bunch of courts. So that's courts, that's in know. the '60s and and early '70s, and Franco uh, left power, I believe, 1975. So that's kind of the timeline, and then and then Pato Alvarez just happened to move to Spain around that time from huh. from Colombia, and he's just and then. Luis Bruguera was working in the trenches around that time as well. And then by the 1980s, that's when Spanish tennis started to rise yeah. and take off. That, that's yeah, really, that's really the root. That. That's the roots of the modern Spanish uh, success. It's really, it's really interesting history, actually. Where, uh, Pato Alvarez, where did he, where was his base of operations? I believe he moved directly to Barcelona. He, basically, he, okay. they, those two coaches were Barcelona Barcelona, yeah. Coaches, and that's in the center of tennis, the heart of tennis in Spain, I think, arguably, is still Barcelona. Yeah. Uh, it's an incredible tennis city, and I would say the mecca for tennis, in, in the one of the great tennis cities in the world, but partly because of those two guys. They did, they they did set down their roots, and they wanted, they built two cat basically, they built players out of Barcelona, you know, so those two wow. guys, those two guys are working within like a 30-minute drive of each other for decades just producing champions it's incredible and, and Bruguera's still at it right Bruguera is semi, i don't want to say he's semi-retired he, he's still working i just saw him this summer and he's getting older i'm worried about his health and you know i'm good friends with him i studied with him for many years he's he has a his academy unfortunately closed they had some uh, it's, it's, uh, I don't know what's going. There may be some financial difficulties during the pandemic, and mm-hmm. well, they uh, I'm really sad actually. The academy in the hills of the Barcelona suburbs is closed now, and they have a new academy called um, Bardo Bardo Competition, which he's affiliated with. But his original academy that he started, I think, in 1986, is closed now, sadly. And Pato Alvarez yeah. passed away last year, so these these uh, Luis Bruguera may not be with us much longer. And and those two guys are the the driving force behind Spanish tennis, the original guys. 
And but now you have all of these academies in Spain. I mean, I know this partially just from my own personal experience because my son attends one in Mallorca. Um, Where's he, he train at? To, uh, well, he goes to Global. You know Global Tennis. I know Joffrey uh, really well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about suffering. Yeah, Joffrey is. Uh, if you if you if you enroll if you enroll him there, then he must like to work. He must like to suffer. Yeah, well, what's interesting about our son is that he grew up uh, in Shanghai, in China, and he went to a Chinese public school, which, you know, suffering is academically is a big thing in China. Mm-hmm. And so he was used to kind of the, the methods that Joffrey employs as far as like... I, I send a lot of know. players to Joffrey, uh, but yeah. I only send my players who are soldiers. And <laughs> if it's interesting, you mentioned Asia... Uh, in Asia, they love the Spanish method, and in Spain, Spanish coaches have been uh, sharing their system with with Asia, Asian countries, and it's one of the reasons why you see a rise in Asian players. They they've been training, they've been heavily influenced by Spanish um, coaches, like Luis Bergara has uh, spent a lot of time in in China, and uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero's academy also, and, and Emilio Sanchez has been working a lot in China. Uh, so that is that is also an interesting seg- segue or link. Uh, the the rise of Asian yeah. tennis, and they love the Spanish method. Maybe for some of the reasons you you alluded to, they they like to suffer, yeah. they like the repetition, they like the work. Uh, so that those two, that connection is very strong between Asia and Spain. Yeah, I, I immediately liked uh, Joffrey just because the, just the idea he has of every player has one ball, and you do not get any more balls and you have to, <laughs> if you hit that ball somewhere else, you got to go fetch it. You're not going to get a bucket of balls. And it's, it's, there was just, they're constantly hitting. There's like no downtime. Yeah, and, and it just was, it was constant. Guy, and guys like, yeah. guys like Joffre and Tony Nadal and even to a certain, uh, Antonio Cascales is another guy. I think you should probably interview uh, especially in relation to Alcaraz and and now Juan Carlos Ferrero and many other uh, coaches who are successful in Spain are are the kind of the next wave or two following Luis Bruguera and Pato Alvarez. That's how I would just uh, describe it and explain it. They're the second the second wave that then they learned from either directly or indirectly from Luis Bruguera and Pato Alvarez. And the teaching method of Luis Bruguera, the methods of Bruguera and, and Alvarez, were um, in, were adopted by the Spanish Federation. So they, they, every coach was kind of indoctrinated. If you, if you got a Spanish tennis license in this country, you had to learn the methods of Luis Bruguera and Pato Alvarez. They were in charge of the Spanish Federation for, uh, at, at different times themselves. So... Whether you you were a big fan of Bruguera or Alvarez and you happened to study with them your, yourself, or you took Spanish coaching courses back in the eighties and nineties, you were basically learning the methods and philosophy of Luis Bruguera and Pato Alvarez. And so you see, like wow. a big wave coming after. So they they directly created, they developed a lot of right. good players themselves. But then you see the second and third waves coming from coaches who are using many of the methods and the techniques and the following the philosophy of those two figures. So I just see those two figures as dominant in, in Spain in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's what it sounds like. Um, so let's, let's talk about Alcaraz because Alcaraz comes at a very interesting time 
Rafa Nadal is at the end of his career, he is still very much suffering <laughs> because he's suffering through so many injuries yeah. every tournament. Um, but then you've got this this guy who just seemed to come out of nowhere and he plays definitely a Spanish method of, of tennis, but as you as you hinted before, he's not doing this consistent type of tennis where you don't make errors. He just goes for it. He tries to just hit out almost on every shot. Yeah, he's he he embodies many of the 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 original secrets that I talked to you about a Spanish sense, but he also breaks the mold. He's an iconoclast. He's different. And that's what's really unique and interesting about him is he has many of the many of the Spanish aspects in his personality and character, but also something different where you, like you said, he's more aggressive. And that's very that's rare in Spain. And he so he's he's new and he's trans he's transforming what it means to be a Spanish player right in front of our eyes. And he's a great role model for young kids in Spain. The system in Spain is going to be changing. Everything I just told you is going to be changing somewhat because of this guy. He's so dynamic. He's so charismatic. And other players and coaches in Spain are, are bound to kind of follow um, the kind of his style in, in some respects. And the real testament to Juan Carlos Ferrero and Antonio Cascales, who are brilliant uh, coaches themselves, obviously Juan Carlos Ferrero was number one player in the world. Yeah. And what the job that they've done with Alcaraz in Vienna, in the little little town in uh, near Alicante, is is inc- that academy is incredible. It's a small little academy built around around Juan Carlos Ferrero's house. <laughs> it's like yeah, his estate. It's basically his estate in the farmlands. It's, it's in the fields in the farmlands outside of this just. You know, small town Vienna. This is nothing there. It's in the middle of nowhere. Wow! And he huh. and this little place has produced uh, two number one players in the world, which is very difficult to do, by the way. Uh, Juan Carlos Ferrero and uh, and now Alcaraz and and Antonio Cascales is is he's very he's he's different than Luis Bruguera and Pato Alvarez. He's very quiet and humble. They're very humble. And he's non-assuming, but this guy's really a, a brilliant, and and he's a genius. And he he's been quietly producing players in that part of Spain for decades. And he's quietly, quite he's a quiet force behind Alcaraz, along with Juan Carlos Ferro. Those two work in tandem. And so Alcaraz plays. He, he plays differently. He's very he's very aggressive. I, I would say sometimes when I watch him, I can't believe he's a Spanish player because. He he breaks that mold of uh, of of er- making errors. You know, the, historically in Spain, I, I don't know what's going to happen to the Spanish system as it as it, as it used to be because you, Pato Alvarez, Luis Bruguer, coaches for for decades, really stressed not making errors. You know, not giving your opponent any free points. And Alcaraz, sometimes when I watch him, I I, I can't believe it uh, how how many errors he allowed. You know, Juan Carlos Ferrero lets him play like that and it's very anti-spanish to, to make errors sometimes the way he does and, but on the other hand he embodies some of the 
great aspects of historically of Spanish that he's a great fighter, he's in great physical condition, he's a beautiful mover, he has a really big forehand weapon. So he has some of those parts, but his personality is a little bit different. There have been a few players like that in Spain over the years who are aggressive. Maybe some, there have been a few serving volleyers in Spanish tennis history. Um, not many though so he he he's 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 different but he's also the same he he he's he, he's a very interesting study uh, so in some ways he's he's evolving this this kind of method in some ways like he's taking it the next step forward sing, single-handedly he's changing what it means to be a spanish player quote unquote uh and and but he's also the he he also represents the the philosophy and method system of Antonio Cascales. You have to look at the people who shape these players, the coaches, and, and he he the the system of Antonio Cascales and and Juan Carlos Ferrer. Juan Carlos Ferrer was Cascales' student, and those two working together in Vienna, in the little 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 in the middle of nowhere in Vienna, um, they they have a method that is not as rigid. It, it's very flexible. It it, it is um, common sense, and it it, it pulls from um from different uh, methods in Spain so it's part you know if you go there you'll see some of the drills of Luis Br- Luis Bruguer some of the drills of Pato Alvarez it's kind of a, a hybrid system and it's flexible it's it's open and i think right. i think that that coaching system allows allowed and still allows for a player like Alcaraz to flourish to develop someone who wants to be a little different attack more take the ball on the rise more Right. Uh, and that is, uh, I think that is a testament to the the open-mindedness of a coach like Antonio Cascales and the the um, the willingness to think for the future. Juan Carlos Ferrero is definitely a big thinker about what's, what's the future of Spanish tennis? What's the future of Spanish tennis players? Uh, they, for example, they want players to be more all-court oriented. They, they want right. players to be good on hard courts not just clay court players. And, and that's, there are other academies too, looking forward like that. Uh, some, that's really yeah. interesting that, like how you mentioned how Ferrero is thinking about these things. I mean, he does seem like a more cerebral coach, like someone who's actually thinking outside the box, who's looking forward, who's sort of trying to see the bigger picture. Right. And I think the way he coaches, but the way he coaches is he, he's completely shaped by Antonio Cascales. So those two right. minds are, so are interlinked. Together, yeah. yeah. They're like a team. And so that that willingness to, to look to the future, the willingness to let a player, like, he lets Alcaraz play. He lets him do that. You know, like it, I think Pato Alvarez and Alcaraz would, would have had a divorce quite quickly. You know, there's no way that Alvarez would, would allow him to, to play the way he does. He, it, would, it would be uh, uh, shocking, you know, for... For, or, or Luis Perguera probably. I mean, Luis Perguera is pretty, pretty open-minded in some respect, but basically not in the respect of making errors. You cannot, in the typical Spanish model, you cannot make errors. You cannot give your opponent any free points. And so this is a new, new style, you know, that... Uh, yeah. That's a fascinating, that's a fascinating observation. I mean, I, you know, I'm curious, you know, the one thing, one, one thing I noticed, um, seeing my own son play, um, with, um, uh, at Global, uh, with Joe Frey and, and, and then, you know, the way that his trainer prefers to train here in Germany, 
is that at least in Germany, there's there tends to be an emphasis on individual training versus group, where where you know Joffrey's doing a lot of group trainings. Is 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 there one that's better in the eyes of Spaniards? So in Germany, they the, there's a stress on private training. Totally, like. Yes, that's absolutely. interesting. Like, it's, there, it's, there's almost there's almost like a, a an adverse reaction to group training. They love to do this individual stuff. Yes, there's a big difference culturally and across different countries. The U.S. is very private, lesson centered as well. Uh, in Spain, one of the first things I noticed. I've been studying there almost 20 years now, and uh, in it, back back in the early 2000s when I started visiting there, they really didn't do private lessons at all. And you couldn't get a private lesson. And many, uh, the first U.S. families, I coach a lot of U.S. families that that I sent there uh, or started traveling to Spain for training. Uh, they they were very, it was kind of a conflict because they came and they're like, hey, I want, uh, how, how can I get a private? And the Spanish just kind of looked at them quizzically like, we don't do that. We don't do privates. And that was back in the day where the, the academy landscape in Spain was not as commercialized it's not as um, uh, not not as monetized as it is now. Right. Unfortunately, there's been a big trend in you know, to sell, sell, sell Spanish academies and train. Unfortunately, right. but but back in the day, every, everyone was keeping it real. You know, in the late '90s, early 2000s, and uh, you just couldn't get a private. You want a private Luis Bruguera, he'd just say no. Or Pato, you know, Pato did some private work with the players that were part of his team that he was traveling with but you know he he did some privates but it just it's just basically there's a philosophy in Spain that you don't need a private lesson you you just Luis Bruguera was very anti-private uh, and he believed that if you come and and he was a huge influence in Spain so Luis Bruguera um I mean he used to tell me no we don't do that um we won't do that and then it's interesting as as the decades went on you get closer to the present all the academies offer privates now in Spain, if you request it. It's changed because they're, they're, they're responding to the demand of the client uh, and they're, they're trying to run a business now more, more than before. And um, so now if you go to Spain, you can request privates. And Emilio Sanchez Academy offers a private option if you're training in groups and, and so on and so forth. So that's a, been a big change in Spain. So now privates are available typically. Uh, but origi- originally, uh, big figures in Spain like Luis Bruguera would argue that you don't need a private. We're going to put two players on the court. Our ratio is going to be very high quality. So every uh, originally, every lesson in Spain, every group uh, was two, typically two players per court. That's one of the part of the Spanish system. It comes from Luis Bruguera and Pato Alvarez. That quality. And you still see that in a lot of the academies in Spain, two players per court. So when you have two players in a group, you can make a good argument. You don't need a private because every group, I mean, even at like BTT at Barcelona Total Tennis, they're famous for two players per court, two players per coach. And the quality is very high and you don't need uh, private lessons. Here in the U.S., a lot of the groups are four players, sometimes more per coach. And that's too much. And then they have to sell a lot of private lessons because of, uh, because you put so many kids into a group, and the group is not that right. high quality. I don't know if the same thing right. happens in Germany or not. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's like a hybrid. I mean, you, you have you have clubs here, of course, um, and they have you know 
they have trainers at the clubs that belong to the clubs and are paid by the clubs. And so they, they run their own teams. And so you get that type of training. And so that's the group training. But then um, most of the serious players have their own individual trainer. And sometimes that individual trainer does not belong to that club. And they're, they're somewhere else. Uh, at least that's the case with, with uh, my son and a lot yeah. of people that we know. Here. But essentially, yeah. you've touched on the uh, important theme in Spanish. That no, no single training. Usually small right. group training is, is enough to build a champion. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, hey, uh, th- this has been fascinating. Um, thanks so much. I think we're going to... Oh, one, oh yeah, one, one thing that we touched on already a little... You, you touched on uh, talking about Ferrero... Um, and how he trains and, and, um, but I, I'm curious, you know, obviously Spaniards are better on clay. Um, how are they training? You know, you mentioned that Ferrero is starting to train in a different way. He's training for hardcore in different surfaces. Yeah. How are they doing that? Like, like is that, is so that easy started, to do in Spain? Yeah. It started in the early 2000s again. In the last two decades, Spain, Spain is rapidly transforming itself and they're competing. Like I said, yeah. these, these elite federations around the world, they're all competing with each other. They're all trying to steal methodology or steal, you know, from each other's systems. And so Spain, couple decades ago just started they literally start all the academies started building hard courts they all have them now uh when i first started traveling in spain most of the academies were primarily clay red clay and uh, if you go to spain now typically you see half and half at most of the places joffrey's academy is an exception it doesn't have hard courts uh, I think he's actually at a at a competitive disadvantage. The fact that he doesn't have hard courts because most of the academies in Spain have that now, and they have easy access to hard courts. And I, I think he probably loses players actually because of his facility, because yeah. parents yeah. want parents want both. And uh, you contrast Joffre to let's say um, Tony Nadal, who's close in Mallorca. And that academy is heavily hardcore based. In fact, in the in the beginning, they built only hard courts, which was a huge disappointment for many people who visited there. They said, "We come to train at Rafa's academy, and there's no clay courts for us to train on." And so they they had a huge blowback. Like when the academy first opened, they had a huge blowback. There was a lot of complaints, and finally, they just they just gave up and built a ton of red clay courts because it's a funny story because apparently Rafa's father he didn't like the the mess you know the clay gets on everything i have i own two clay courts here at my club it gets on everything so the, his dad didn't want literally didn't want the clay getting everywhere and ruining this the sparkling facility and so they just built hard courts <laughs> that's part of the it's part of the story and so but i mean that's a good point right it does get everywhere if you have if like as a parent well, well rafa's like, that's they're kind of they're, he's kind of meticulous like he likes everything spotless he if you go yeah, yeah you go right. to the academy yeah. said so they didn't want clay they didn't want the kids tracking the clay everywhere you know yeah. <laughs> and then but I mean, they he's got that ocd thing going yeah on, and so then yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> and then so so tony nadal he tried. They tried to pass it off, and they, everyone came, and everyone was disappointed. Like, we're, we're, there's no clay courts here. My son played all week on hard, and uh, they said, "Well, you know, the pro tour. It's all. It's mostly hardcore based now." And they tried very hard to convince the early people who visited, there. and finally, they just gave up and built a lot of red clay. Uh, so it's a good story, but. Uh, all the academies are doing that now. They some of them have more clay or or less, but you know the 
So everybody has both now, and all the kids are, are playing on both. But it's interesting, even you, you started that question by saying Spanish players are known for being better on clay. That every, everything's being turned on its head because you could argue that Alcaraz might be better on hard. You know, and he he may he may change the definition of of of, the, of what we how we think about Spanish players being being better on clay because I think if you ask him if you ask his coaching team they might say he's better on hard you know even though he's very good on clay. Wow, that's interesting. Um, okay, I think we can stop the recording now. <laughs> okay, I got it. Let's, I hope Let's... we got it all. We hope you enjoyed the program. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and recommend the show to your friends. We greatly appreciate your likes and shares. Thank you for your support of the show and for helping us grow our audience. If you would like to train with Chris, please visit chrislewitt.com for more info. You can also join Chris's online school, clta.teachable.com, and follow his blog at prodigymaker.com. A reminder that all show archives can be found at youtube.com forward slash chrislewitt. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Vamos.